The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Um, we have a special privilege uh, today uh, to hear from, from Dan Murata. Dan and his wife Rachel were a part of Park Church for a few years, uh, about a decade ago. And... Uh, invested in so many ways. They led small groups. Dan taught some classes we were doing called Gospel-Centered Life to help new people get connected. Now, we sent them out somewhere around nine-ish years ago. Um, Around this time, they went to kind of Falls Church area in Virginia for a little while to do uh, an apprenticeship program and then went to Richmond, Virginia in 2016. Is that right? 2016 to plant Redeemer Anglican Church. Um, And so Park Church has been a a partner with and learning alongside uh, Redeemer Anglican Church for the past seven years. Uh, we used to always say, Dan's planting a church in, in Richmond, Virginia, but he's not planting a church anymore. It's seven years old. They're like a straight-up church. Um, and so he's pastoring a wonderful church in, uh, in Richmond, Virginia that we love, we learn from. Dan is a great friend to me. We love their family. He's actually going on a sabbatical this summer with his family, which is exciting. Um, just an incredible uh, friend to our church. And their church is just a church that we learn from a lot and grow with a lot. So he comes every year uh, Uh, to preach here on a Sunday, and it's always a blessing to our community, always a highlight of the year uh, for me and I think for us as a church family. Uh, This year, he recently wrote a book, uh, released this book, Liturgy in the Wilderness, and the subtitle is How the Lord's Prayer Shapes the Imagination of the Church in a Secular Age. How the Lord's Prayer, which he's going to be talking about today, or at least a, a part of that prayer, shapes the way we live and experience God and experience the world, and it kind of trains us to be mature, growing mature people that live in the midst of the complexities of our life here and now. And so it's a really wonderful book. I'm not going to kind of spoil it for you for two reasons. One, Dan's going to be preaching on it right now, uh, at least aspects related to it, themes related to it. Second is we actually have them available uh, on the way out for purchase. We bought them at a discounted rate, and we're selling them to you at a discounted rate, um, more, more discounted rate. Uh, and so we're selling them for $5, which means it's super cheap for you, and Dan gets way less money. Um, so, it, you know, it's great for you, not as great for him, but it'll be fine. Uh, he's, he's for that. Um, anyway, you can grab those on the way out. They're available out in the lobby. Um, but if you would, open up your Bible to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read from uh, Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4. That's on page 816 in your Bible, in your Pubeck Bible, if you're looking there. If you're new to the Bible, again, uh, 816, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we'd love for you to have one. Uh, we really believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's alive, uh, and God works in, in it and through it in our lives. And so we'd encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, grab that one and take it home as a gift. Again, we're in Luke chapter 11. We'll read verses 1 through 4. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Can you all welcome Dan as he comes on stage here? Well, good morning, Park Church. Good morning to you all. 
So fun to be here with you guys. Clearly, not from around here, right? Some of you are picking up on that. Um, so I, I, I am an Anglican priest, which is a very weird creature, strange genus and species. Um, it's a, an odd thing to be in our, in our day and age. Uh, but I'm glad to be here with you. And even though Park Church and the church that we were a part of planting in Richmond, Virginia, are, are different in, in many ways. And, and if you were to visit there, if you were flying through Richmond and you want to pop in on a Sunday, you would experience maybe some, some differences between our two different congregations. And yet, I hope you would actually experience a lot of the same things because you would hear us proclaiming and rejoicing and celebrating in the very same gospel. And so even though our two congregations are part of, you know, these two different denominations or kind of tribes, one day all of that's going to go away. And the unity that we share in our belief and our faith in the gospel will one day be made manifest and will be expressed. And so today, we're just practicing like a little bit of that unity that one day we will experience in full. Agreed? Yeah. Some of you are like, I don't know. We'll see how the sermon goes. Um, Yeah. So uh, this is way more fun for me than it is for you for two reasons. One, it's way more fun to be a guest preacher than to listen to a guest preacher, okay? Like none of y'all came, nobody, nobody on planet earth goes to church in the morning thinking, I hope there's a guest preacher today, okay? Nobody thinks that. You're here to listen to like Gary or Joel or Neil or one of the other great pastors on staff, and you should, that's great. Um, but the other reason why this is more fun for me than it is for you is because Park was our home from 2012 to 2014, and it was a great, healthy home for us. And so if I can just like speak to the people in the room who are maybe visiting for the first or second or third time, if you're one of those people and you're kind of on the fence and you're like, I'm trying Park out on for size, I want to see if this place is a good fit for me, let me just like skip to the end of the book. It's a good fit for you. You can just decide to stay. Like today could be the last day that you are looking for a new church home. You could just settle in here. It's a great home for us, and I I would suspect it'd be a good home for you as well. Park also continues to support Redeemer, which is the the church that we planted, and we are incredibly grateful for that support. And that support has, has been in ideas and coaching and leadership and guidance. It's also been in the way of, of financial resources. And so in the first couple years, in those early kind of nascent years of church planting, we really needed that financial support just to exist. And now that our church has grown a bit, uh, here's what we do with those resources. We are now a part of planting other churches in the city of Richmond. We sent out our first church plant in 2019, our second one about uh, six months ago towards the end of 2022. Our third one is, is like locked in the hopper and is good to go for Easter of 2024. And I'm interviewing candidates for our fourth like church planter in residence position now. And so we take the resources that Park so generously gives to us and we just, it passes through us and we just give them on to the next church plant that's happening in Richmond. And so... Thank you. I just want to say to you all, Park is an unusually generous place. I don't know of any other churches in the country that give like time and resource and energy to helping plant churches in other denominations in other time zones. Like, well done. You guys are so kind and so generous. Gary, the rest of the team, thank you all. So, for all of those reasons, I'm having more fun than you right now, okay? All right, so we're going to get started on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer it's kind of like a treasure hidden in plain sight, meaning it's something incredibly valuable 
but we, are, we tend to be overly familiar with it, at least most people are. It's kind of something to be like memorized, recited, and then kind of discarded and forgotten, at least for a lot of people. But I would like to suggest this morning, the Lord's Prayer is not only so much more than that, but it's exactly what the church needs to reclaim in our current cultural moment, because the Lord's Prayer offers not only a theological framework for the Christian life, it does, But also, the Lord's Prayer is subversive, meaning it undermines like the idolatries of our hearts and even like the empires in our world. The Lord's Prayer is is dynamic, not static. It goes to work on you. It does something to you while you pray it. Now, that's not my idea. That's actually a really old idea. And so, if you'll um, tolerate it for just a second, I want to quote something to you in Latin, okay? This is a very old church idea. Go back in church history with me all the way back to like when church services were in Latin. And you would hear people say things like, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, okay? Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. And as I know some of you are like, oh my goodness, there's a priest and he's speaking in Latin, like I'm in the wrong place. Hang in there. Here's what it means. It means the law of praying is the law of believing is the law of living. Meaning, a shorthand for that would be prayer subverts your lifestyle. Prayer changes you. It changes the way you live. Prayer is not just expressing something inside of you. Prayer is actually forming you from the outside in. Prayer can become like an exoskeleton that kind of melts into you to become an internal skeleton. It's kind of a gross analogy. Um, So with with the remainder of our time this morning, I just want to kind of like show you how that works. And I want to demonstrate it in one particular line of the Lord's Prayer. And the line I picked for us this morning is the line that I think best represents what most of us tend to do when it comes time to pray. And it's this line, give us this day our daily bread. It's the line where we start asking God for stuff. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but I'm going to kind of presume on your humanity here for a moment. Like, I would suspect that many of your prayers, like many of my prayers, tend to orient around asking God for things, right? It's the thing that makes people interested in prayer. Oh, I can like ask God for stuff? Yes. So, what we're going to do is we're going to examine how does this line in the Lord's Prayer actually subvert and undermine and transform what it means to ask God for things, okay? Now, to help us, let's, let's begin in prayer to ask the Holy Spirit to speak through us, through, through me, through His Word, so that we can all become more faithful followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to You, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Okay. This invitation in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, does two things to us. And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, here are your two categories, okay? Category number one, it exposes our frailty. Category number two, it teaches us dependence, okay? Exposing our frailty, it teaches us dependence. If you like outlines, there's your outline, okay? All right, let's start with exposing our frailty. If you've ever read through the Bible, and I know not everybody has, but if you remember all the way back towards the beginning, there's the story of the Exodus, where God's people, the Israelites, are set free from slavery in Egypt. And you might remember that Exodus chapter 15 is really exciting. The Israelites are set free from slavery. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through. And then as their enemies pursue them, God brings the waters down and drowns the entire Egyptian army. Exodus 15 is like a Michael Bay-directed summer blockbuster. It's like 
over-the-top violent, okay? There's all kinds of stuff going on. There's dead enemies and dancing and parties and songs and celebration. And for the Israelites, this is like a high-water mark. Dad joke, right? Okay. You guys didn't even get it. Come on. There it is. Courtesy laugh. Thank you. Okay. So the, things are looking really good for the Israelites at this particular moment, but then what happens? Then God takes them into the wilderness, and that's when things kind of start to go sideways. At the first sign of trouble, all the Israelites are ready to turn around and leave God and leave Moses, forget about all this freedom stuff, and just kind of go back to, back to Egypt. The Israelites look around at the wilderness, and they go, our context needs to change. We need to go somewhere else. And what the Lord essentially does with God's people in the wilderness, he says, oh no, it's not this place that has to change. It's you that has to change. It says, quote, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. It's the whole congregation, which at this point for the Israelites is like a million plus people. Not just a few bad apples, it's everybody. Everybody's complaining. And they are saying to each other, quote, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Question for the class. Is that what Egypt was like for the Israelites? No. Answer is no. In Egypt, the Israelites were enslaved, their children were taken from them and killed. Baby boys pried from their mother's arms and cast into the Nile River to drown in front of their parents. It's horrifying. This is why Exodus chapter 2 tells us that, quote, the people of Israel groaned out to the Lord because of their slavery and cried out for help. So, sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, not even close. Not a lot of barbecue and baked goods going on in Egypt for Israel. So what do we see? We see that the first thing the wilderness does is it exposes our frailty. And when our frailty is exposed, the first thing we tend to do is to deny it. We shift into denial mode. We weren't slaves. We ate well back in Egypt. Full-on denial. It's a romanticizing of the past. And this is totally normal, y'all. It's not good, but it is normal. When you and I start to feel the pain of vulnerability, like you get to that place in life where things are not going your way, you move to Denver, you got the job, you thought it was going to be great, turns out the job's not great, turns out you don't like where you live, turns out you thought you'd have a lot of friends, turns out nobody likes you, like things are not going your way, way, right? You're experiencing this feeling of vulnerability in the wilderness. What happens? You start kind of daydreaming about how good things used to be. You start even kind of like making up a past that maybe even never existed. The telltale emotion of denial is nostalgia. Nostalgia, a romanticized version of the past that either selectively remembers only the good parts or straight up invents a past that never existed at all. Nostalgia denies that the past was just as dangerous as the present. And denying your frailty, like denying your nostalgia here, can actually get you killed. Some of you might have either read the book or watched the movie Into the Wild, which tells the story of Christopher McCandless, this incredible young man who hitchhikes to Alaska to live solo in the wilderness. And while his adventurous spirit is like fun and inspiring and makes for a great story, the reader can't help to have this like ominous sense of impending doom as the story goes on. And unsurprisingly, the story ends tragically. The Christopher dies of starvation in the wilderness. Why? because he didn't take his own frailty seriously. Now, what happens next in the desert for the Israelites? God is patient with his grumbling people. He sends flocks of quail to land near the Israelites in the evening, so they have meat to eat. In the morning, he sends manna, 
This flaky, white, honey-flavored bread appears on the ground every morning, six days a week, in this astonishing display of God's provision for His people. And God tells His people He's going to keep providing all their food for free on the regular, and they don't have to gather extra because He will always provide more. And what do the Israelites do? Well, if you know the story, you know they don't believe it. They don't listen. Instead, they gather extra manna and they keep it overnight to hoard up and save. And by morning, Exodus 16, verse 20, which I think is one of the funniest Bible verses in the whole of Scripture, it says, quote, the bread, uh, bread warms and stank. Do you know the word stank is in the Bible? So what are we seeing here? We see that, like, first we deny our frailty. First we shift into denial mode. Then second we shift into compensation mode. We compensate for our frailties. In this scenario, we'll gather gather enough manna to last for many days, just in case God stops providing. And I wonder, just think back a few years with me, I wonder if there's a more perfectly hilarious and yet spiritually tragic picture of how we try to compensate for how vulnerable we feel than the empty toilet paper aisles in every grocery store across the United States when the pandemic first struck, right? You remember that? I do. Americans hoarding dried beans, flour, paper towels, pantries and freezers stuffed to overflowing, bags of kale salad rotting in every refrigerator, right? Did we eat the kale salad? We did not. Did you eat the kale salad? You did not. Turns out nobody eats kale salad, right? But we all bought it, and we all stored it in our refrigerators, right? Why? Because for a hot second, everybody panicked and thought there wasn't going to be enough, and we started compensating. That's what we do. Anxiety is the telltale emotion for compensation, for compensating for our frailty. The telltale emotion of of denial is nostalgia. The telltale emotion of compensation is anxiety. Compensation is trying to bail water out of the boat faster than it's coming in. It's airbrushing your selfies because you feel ugly. Compensating always grows out of anxiety that things are about to implode if you don't do something quick. And it's probably worth asking for just a moment this morning, why are there so many anxious Christians? because there are a lot of anxious Christians. Why? You would think that the subset of society that believes in a sovereign God of love and mercy who has promised to provide for our every need and who numbers the hairs in our head would have very little to worry about. And the thing about anxiety, though, is that anxiety left unchecked will usually morph, evolve, mutate into anger, and anger always requires an object. You can't be angry at nothing and nobody. Anger requires an object. And that's exactly what we see in the story of Israel. Do you notice how often the word grumble comes up in the story of Israel in the wilderness? Now, if I can do a quick little like Old Testament Hebrew language like excursus here for a second. If you're reading through the Old Testament and you ever notice, particularly in the book of the Psalms, that sometimes authors tend to repeat themselves. They say the same things over and over again. Here's what's happening uh, linguistically. The authors of the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, didn't have the font ability to put something in all caps and bold, okay? So instead, what you do if you're an author of one of the Old Testament books is you repeat things. Repeating is Hebrew for putting something in bold and all caps, okay? So if you see an author repeating something, it's supposed to get your attention. This is the main idea. So, Exodus 16, verse 8, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Three times in one sentence. When we feel vulnerable, we feel anxious, and that in turn makes us angry, 
And when we get angry, we tend to direct our anger towards other people, especially who? Leaders. Our anger gets directed towards the leaders when we feel vulnerable. The Israelis don't like the fact that God has led them into the wilderness because the wilderness makes them feel vulnerable and weak. And so they get angry with who? With Moses and Aaron, the leaders. They're looking for a scapegoat. And this brings us to the third thing that we tend to do when our frailty is exposed. First we deny, then we compensate, then finally we blame. We get angry and we blame. If I'm feeling vulnerable, it must be somebody else's fault. Maybe it's the politicians. Maybe it's big business. Maybe it's people that are richer than me. (laughs) Maybe it's my parents. It's definitely parents, right? Could it be my pastor? It's probably your pastor. We only have to go three chapters deep into the story of the Bible before we find people blaming each other for their frailty. Adam blames Eve. It's this woman you put me here with. Eve blames the serpent. He tricked me. You can hear this undertone of bitterness and resentment in their blaming. Listen, anger is the telltale emotion that lets us know that we're probably blaming somebody for how at risk we feel. If we feel angry, we likely feel that some grave injustice has been committed against us. Now, just as another aside, to be clear, injustice is real and it really does happen. And when real injustice takes place, righteous anger is the appropriate emotional response. But if we could just be honest for a second with each other and with ourselves, most anger amongst Christians is less of the righteous protest variety and more of the blaming and complaining variety, right? So, where are we emotionally at this point? Nostalgia, anxiety, anger. This is starting to feel familiar, at least for me. God takes us into the wilderness and gives us these words to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And the first reason God does this is to expose our frailty. God's intention with us is to help us become, over time, more trusting and content and secure, confident, dependent people. But in order to do that with us, He must first help us see that we are actually not, in fact, the strong, independent, powerful providers that we like to think that we are. We have some unlearning to do before we can learn to trust God and be dependent on Him as a provider. So in other words, you and I are not ready to pray, give us this day our daily bread, until we can first admit, even if it's just to ourselves, I feel vulnerable, I don't feel safe, I don't know if I'll have enough, I don't know if I'm going to make it, I feel afraid, I'm fragile. The wilderness is God's workshop. It's the place God takes us where He will carefully and gently apply pressures to us until we stop denying and stop compensating and stop blaming and learn to come to Him. Now, if that's the first thing the wilderness does, what's the second thing? The second thing the wilderness does for us is it teaches us dependence. So what does God want me to do here in the wilderness? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says to His disciples, and we read a version of this earlier in the service, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your own kids, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Jesus is showing us the heart of God the Father. And and I, I know you've heard Park Church pastors say this before, that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. This is what Jesus is showing us. 
Jesus is showing us that God is saying through Jesus to us, I'm your father. You can come to me like a child. Stop denying that you need me. Stop overcompensating by trying to find a way to get all money and stuff and networks and resources so that you don't need me anymore. Stop blaming other people for the fact that you just don't trust me. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. You can come to me. You can ask me. I know you. I know what you need. I'll take care of you. You can think about it this way. Uh, in the Murata house, all the way back in Richmond, Virginia, my wife and I have four kids, and y'all, I would just confess to you all this morning, like, we are okay parents, all right? Like, if there's a list of parent boxes that we're supposed to check, we check some of the boxes and definitely not all of them, but here's one box we do check. We have always fed our kids, okay? The Murata kids are fed kids, all right? Sometimes there are special breakfasts in the morning on holidays, breakfasts of shrimp and grits and andouille sausage and sautéed peppers with tomatillo sauce ladled over top. I know, brunch is coming. It's going to be okay. Um, and some of you are like not from the South, so you don't know what I'm talking about. Come to our house for breakfast. It's good. Um, other weeks, there's just like plain oatmeal for days. But either way, there's always been breakfast. There's never not been breakfast in the Murata house. Now, imagination exercise. If one of my children crept down the stairs in his pajamas and grabbed four boxes of cereal and sprinted upstairs to his room, I would be concerned. What's going on? And if I followed said kid up to his room and found him hoarding cereal in his bedroom and asked him what he was doing, and he replied that he was worried there would be no breakfast, and that he was just being wise, and dad, saving extra cereal for later just makes good fiscal sense, right? Like, I would, my heart as a dad would be concerned, right? We have a problem. My kid doesn't believe there's going to be breakfast tomorrow. We've got some work to do. It would grieve my heart. In the Gospel of Mark, we find this story of Jesus addressing this problem with people. We find the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. What's the big idea in that story? Jesus is embodying the heart of the Heavenly Father for God's children. He's showing the world that God cares about our hungry bellies. But even as we hear that, there's probably some really sharp, critical-thinking person in the back who's at this point thinking, yeah, Dan, but like, what about when there's literally no bread? What about all the people who pray the Lord's Prayer and then starve? What about them? What about the real needs in the world? Are you saying that those people didn't pray or didn't pray the right way or didn't ask God to provide or God didn't provide for them? What's up with that? Jesus addresses that too. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's embodying the story of God's people. You might not know that. Jesus begins his ministry by recapitulating the story of Israel in the wilderness and showing the world what it looks like to be faithful in the wilderness where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And during that time, Jesus fasts. He eats nothing. He's very hungry, hungrier than any of us have ever been. And we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 4. The tempter comes to Jesus and says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become what? Loaves of bread. And Jesus, in this very interesting response, says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a very interesting response. Jesus seems to be saying that the most important thing at play in that particular moment is not whether or not he wants to eat bread, but whether or not he is dependent on God the Father. Jesus is saying, essentially, I would rather starve and die than live on anything other than the bread of God. And Jesus not only perfectly shows us what it looks like to trust God in the wilderness, he also becomes in himself, in his body, the means by which 
we can begin to trust God in our own wilderness. In John chapter 6, we read about this interaction that Jesus had with some religious leaders where, uh, you know, the religious leaders like the Pharisees in the New Testament, they get such a bad rap, y'all. They are acting exactly the way any of us would act in this situation, okay? They go to Jesus and they say, essentially, how do we know that you're legit? Like, we're skeptical. We're not idiots. We don't want to just like follow anybody. Can you like give us some proof here? And they say to Jesus, when Moses was here, he gave us a sign, manna from heaven, What kind of sign do you give us? And we might expect at this moment for Jesus to perform a miracle on the spot. Like this is the moment that the loaves and fishes miracle makes the most sense. Jesus at this point ought to like feed everybody and be like, do you believe now? Right? He doesn't do that. What does he do? Instead, Jesus tells them they've got it all wrong. Moses didn't give them manna. It was a gift from God, not from him. And God the Father has given them another gift. God has given them the bread of life. These people are listening. They're like, okay, we're intrigued. Tell us more. Bread of life. We'll take that. Can you get us some? And what does Jesus say next? He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And how do the religious leaders respond? This is so funny. More grumbling. The author is taking us from the New Testament all the way back to Exodus 16, all over again, thousands of years later. We're right back in the wilderness. And yet, patient Jesus responds so beautifully. He says to them, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus went on to fulfill that and embody that in every possible way. Christ died on the cross so that we can live on the bread of God. Jesus himself is the bread that was broken in order to feed us. Now, this is why for nearly two millennia, most Christians in most churches, in most places in the world, have sought to regularly practice as a part of worship to come to what we call the Lord's table, to receive the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper of communion. It's a very simple meal, and in a mysterious way that we can experience and describe, but that we can't quite forensically define, Jesus is really and truly present to us in the bread and the wine of this meal. And it's a meal that we're all going to take together here as part of worship here on Sunday. Now, when we go to a worship service and we pray the Lord's Prayer, we should be deeply encouraged when, like, mere minutes after saying those words, that petition, give us this day our daily bread, God then answers the prayer and puts physical bread into our mouths. Bread that is, according to St. Augustine in the 5th century, bread that is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. But listen, don't make this mistake. The Lord's Supper is not the answer to the petition, give us this day our daily bread, because it makes use of bread. Some of you are are about to make that mistake. Don't do it. You're thinking to yourself right now, oh, I see what he's doing. He's talking about bread, and then we're going to eat bread. That's kind of neat. No, it's so much better than that. It's deeper than that. This is the answer to the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, because It's actually the presence of Jesus that nourishes us, and the physical bread that we eat reminds us of this, symbolizes that to us, and actually, in a sense, like carries within it like the presence of Jesus to us. 
God who is with us, Emmanuel. Remember, the original sin of humanity is, is, is what? Is independence, rejecting God, seeking to provide for ourselves. And so when we come to the Lord's table, you know what we're doing? We are returning to the original form that we are created for. We're like returning to our created humanity, meant to be fed by God. That's why whenever we come, we come in a posture of reception. You don't come to the Lord's table and grab. You come and receive. Now, if you're having a hard time connecting with this, just think about it this way. When the Murata kids cry out in the middle of night, as they so often do, uh, you know what they actually need from me as dad? The first thing they need from me before they need anything else is they need my presence. Like, I can provide all the night lights and drinks of water and trips to the bathroom and extra blankets. Like, I, we got that. Again, we check some boxes as parents. Uh, but the first thing my kids need when they wake up and they are scared and they feel their childlike vulnerability in the dark is they need the presence of their father. First come the presence, then comes the provision. And when we ask God for our daily bread, his answer begins with his presence to us, with the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Jesus saying to us in his Holy Spirit, my child, I am here. There's nothing to fear. Now, tell me your troubles. Tell me your needs. And God's presence changes us. If we know that he's with us, then it changes us. We are transformed. We become these people who don't have to lapse back into nostalgia, longing for an easier and better time when life just didn't feel so confusing and so dangerous. We don't have to deny our own frailty and act like everything would be fine if we could just get back to the way things used to be. We don't have to be those kinds of Christians who just wish they lived in like the 1950s or any time earlier in history when like most people were kind of like at least sort of okay with Christians and it just felt like an easier time to publicly be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to long for that. You can actually accept and embrace our current place and our current time and live with a kind of cheerfulness and confidence and trust and security. Not because the wilderness has suddenly become safe, but because God is with you and his presence is with you. You can become people that don't have to be anxious about the future, wondering if we'll have what we need. You don't have to rush around compensating for the day that you don't think God's gonna come through. You can become people who don't need to be angry about how uncomfortable our lives have become, and you certainly don't have to blame anybody for how vulnerable you feel. You can move from a place of denial to a place of acceptance, cheerfully confessing, I'm weak, full stop. You can move from compensating to a place of dependence, humbly confessing, I actually need God for everything, not just some things, everything. You can move from blaming to a place of trust, confidently confessing God will provide. Now, if you are the kind of person who in Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit is able to make those shifts, do you know what happens? Here's the twist. You ready for it? A person who is genuinely able to say, I'm weak. I'm totally dependent on God. I am trusting Him to provide for me is ironically a very strong person. That person is very strong. Why? Because that person has surrendered the losing battle of rugged independence and has given their allegiance to a king who is far stronger than all of their enemies. This is why the Apostle Paul can say things like in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what? Weakness. The daily bread of God's presence doesn't eliminate our frailty. 
We're still vulnerable. We are. I am. You are too. Rather, it subverts our frailty by showing us that when we're weak, then we become strong. And because we understand our weakness and our frailty, we become more dependent on God's presence and on His provision, which are strong and sure. Let me end with this. Uh, there's a, a TV show that um, my wife and I uh, kind of like were into for a while, and it's called Alone. Maybe some of you have seen this. The premise of the show, I think, is hysterical, okay? You take like a dozen people uh, who all think that they're really good at survival, and you drop them in the Alaskan wilderness, and they just have to see how long they can make it. And whoever makes it the longest, they win. It's just a wait-out-the-clock scenario. Um, it's a great show to watch, and my personal favorite, is just to like make a giant plate of nachos, and then just to watch these people as they're so hungry, and they're trying to like roast squirrels over the fire, and they're like, wow, that looks really bad. I'm going to get some ice cream. Right? In, epi- in season two, episode one of this show, there's a contestant that, I, that when I was watching, I like paused it and like immediately went and wrote it down and I thought, oh my goodness, that is so true. This contestant is sitting there. He has no food. He has no water. And he is staring out over a bleak and barren landscape in the wilderness. And after some kind of contemplating of his situation, he says this into like the little camera that is like all perched on a rock next to him. He looks at the camera and he goes, it's not this place that has to change. It's me that has to change. And as Christians and followers of Jesus in Western culture, we are tempted to succumb to nostalgia for eras of Christendom past. We have this anxiety about the direction of our culture, and we can blame it on our increasing vulnerability. And it might be time for some of us to begin meditating on that sentence. It's not this place that has to change. It's me that has to change. And that's not to say that we don't stop longing for the renewal of all things, like the dawning of that bright new day when the kingdom of God will fully and finally arrive and at last all things will be restored and set right. Like, yes, the promised land is real. We are right to anticipate it. But until then, you know what we got to do? We've got to journey. We've got to pilgrimage through the wilderness of our secular age. And you know what kind of wilderness that is? What do we see when we look out on it? Do we see this barren wasteland of emptiness? Or, as we begin to pray, give us this day our daily bread, are our whole selves and even our eyes transformed so that we actually begin to see in the wilderness a place of bounty and provision because God's presence is with us every step of the way. The surprising fruit on the other side of this subversive prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is that we actually start seeing bread everywhere. Our eyes are open to see the manna that covers the ground like dew. If God is truly present with us, and He is, then there's always enough, always. You can feast on His Word every day. You can feast at His table in the church. You can know the consolation of His presence every moment. You can always ask for daily bread, and there is always a God who listens and who provides. Alleluia. Amen. Now, what I'd like to do is close the sermon with the Lord's Prayer. We're going to use the old language because I'm an old language kind of guy. <laughs> um, if you have it memorized and want to recite it with me from, from heart, like, that's great. Let's do it together. If you don't, that's okay. No shame. Just listen. And in the words of J.D. a few moments ago, just let it wash over you. Okay? Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.